Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 21st day of December, 2008. I'd like to remind my listeners, as always, to check out the website, CorbettReport.com, CorbettReport.com, where you can find not only previous episodes of this podcast, but also articles, interviews, and videos created by the Corbett Report in the past. By clicking on the Episodes tab on the left-hand side, you'll also be able to find today's episode, and by clicking on the Documentation link, you'll find a list of documents sorted by time index, linking to the original source documents used in the research of today's episode. I'd like to thank all of those listeners who contacted me via the contact form on CorbettReport.com to remind me about the YouTube blackout, the YouTube boycott that is going on this weekend from the 19th to the 21st of December, and I hope that all of my listeners have been participating in that boycott. Of course, there are serious YouTube censorship issues, and some of the recent changes made to the YouTube account interface and channel design have been, of course, detrimental to the idea of getting things spread through grassroots viral movements. Of course, it's always dangerous when one company has such a massive share of the market as to make it virtually a monopoly, as GooTube does. And people have more than enough reasons to be suspicious of GooTube, so definitely I do support the effort. And to that end, in the future, look for Corbett Report videos to be posted not only to YouTube, but to other major file-sharing sites. And eventually look for the front-page Corbett Report video to feature not the YouTube player, but that of a different file-sharing site, in an effort to diversify and build up other sites that could then become, hopefully, rivals to the all-pervasive influence of a giant like YouTube. At any rate, we have arrived at the holiday season, and of course the Corbett Report podcast will be taking a holiday as well for a few weeks to recharge, regroup, and most importantly, finish working on the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary, which is forthcoming and will be posted in its entirety on alqaedadoesntexist.com as soon as it is available. Look for this Corbett Report podcast to return in January with weekly episodes. But right now, it's time for today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from an undated report on Haaretz.com. Anti-Defamation League joins YouTube to fight online hate. The widely popular video-sharing website YouTube has reached out to the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, for its expertise in dealing with hate on the internet. As a result of this partnership, the League is now a contributor to YouTube's newly launched Abuse and Safety Center, where users are empowered to identify and confront hate and to report abuses. The YouTube Abuse and Safety Center features information and links to resources developed by ADL to help internet users respond to and report offensive material and extremist content that violates YouTube's community guidelines on hate speech. YouTube is an incredible tool for sharing videos and giving individuals an opportunity to broadcast themselves, but like other social networking sites, it can be abused or used for sinister and dangerous purposes, said Abraham H. Foxman, ADL National Director. 
There are those who may try to exploit the technology to spread racism, anti-Semitism, and other forms of hate. We commend YouTube for their efforts to provide users with access to important information from those with expertise, such as ADL and others, on how to effectively respond to hate on the Internet and to report abuses, Foxman said. Today's second real news story comes from naturalnews.com, December 17, 2008. FDA stuns scientists, declares mercury and fish to be safe for infants, children, expectant mothers. In a truly astonishing betrayal of public safety, even for the FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration today revoked its warning about mercury and fish, saying that eating mercury-contaminated fish no longer poses any health threat to children, pregnant women, nursing mothers, and infants. Last week, the FDA declared trace levels of melamine to be safe in infant formula. A few weeks earlier, it said the plastic's chemical bisphenol A was safe for infants to drink. Now it says children can eat mercury, too. Is there any toxic substance in the food that the FDA thinks might be dangerous? Aspartame? MSG, sodium nitrite, and now mercury? This FDA decision on mercury and fish has alarmed EPA scientists who called it scientifically flawed and inadequate, reports the Washington Post. Even better, the Environmental Working Group issued a letter to the EPA saying, It's a commentary on how low FDA has sunk as an agency. It was once a fierce protector of America's health, and now it's nothing more than a patsy for polluters. Today's final real news story comes from rawstory.com, December 17, 2008. Career Army Specialist sues Rumsfeld Cheney, saying no evacuation order given on 9-11. A Career Army Specialist who survived the attacks of September 11, 2001, claims that no evacuation was ordered inside the Pentagon, despite flight controllers calling in warnings of approaching hijacked aircraft nearly 20 minutes before the building was struck. According to a timeline of the attacks, the Federal Aviation Administration notified NORAD that American Airlines Flight 77 had been hijacked at 9.24 a.m. The Pentagon was not struck until 9.43 a.m. On behalf of Specialist April Gallup, who served in the Network Infrastructure Services Agency as an administrative specialist, California attorney William Veal has filed a civil suit against former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, Vice President Dick Cheney, and former U.S. Air Force General Richard Myers, who was acting chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on 9-11. It alleges they engaged in conspiracy to facilitate the terrorist attacks and purposefully failed to warn those inside the Pentagon contributing to injuries she and her two-month-old son incurred. Specialist Gallup also says she heard two loud explosions and does not believe that a Boeing 757 hit the building. Her son sustained a serious brain injury, and Gallup herself was knocked unconscious after the roof collapsed onto her office. The suit also named additional, unknown persons who had foreknowledge of the attacks. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 69 of the Corbett Report, AQDE Sneak Preview. 
AQDE, of course, is Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, which, of course, my listeners know by now, is the title of the forthcoming documentary that will be featured, of course, on the CorbettReport.com homepage, as well as AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, the official homepage for the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary. As I've mentioned before, the documentary will, of course, be put up in its entirety on AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com as soon as it's available, but as it's not likely to be completed before the new year, I will be, until the time that it is completed, posting the documentary in segments to both CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and of course on the YouTube channel of Corbett Report. I'll begin posting the segments before the new year, and it will likely continue well into the new year. So please look forward to that. But today I'd like to feature an audio excerpt from the forthcoming documentary. The documentary itself will contain seven parts, as well as a prologue and epilogue. And today I'd like to feature part one of Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, entitled Founding, Funding, and Training. This section will go, of course, into the prehistory and the genesis of what we have come to know as the Al-Qaeda terrorist network, and how it received its start in Afghanistan in the late 1970s. Now, since the final edit of this segment has not been completed, and since background music can be distracting when you lack the visuals to go along with the entire sensory experience of the documentary, today I will be featuring simply the audio of the narration of this segment of the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary. So, without further ado, let's listen to part one of Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. This is Big New Brzezinski. He was National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter. He is currently a top foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama. And, in 1979, he supervised a covert American intelligence operation to fund and train the Afghan Mujahideen that would form the base of Al-Qaeda. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The CIA involvement with the Afghan Mujahideen including an estimated 3 to $20 billion of American taxpayer money that was spent by the U.S. to train and equip them, has been known and acknowledged for years. The operation was part of a Cold War gambit to bog down the Red Army in what was to become the Soviet Union's own Vietnam, an unending struggle to occupy a country against a determined, and, thanks to the CIA, well-funded and trained guerrilla resistance. The scheme, known as Operation Cyclone, was in fact an amazing success. The years of guerrilla fighting and thousands of deaths demoralized the Red Army, drained the resources of an already overstrained CCCP, and emboldened citizens in other Soviet satellites to throw off the yoke of communist repression. 
The Red Army retreated from Afghanistan in 1989, and the Soviet Union fell shortly thereafter. What is hardly ever acknowledged, however, is that the CIA involvement with the Mujahideen did not start after the Soviets entered Afghanistan, but before the invasion took place. This startling admission came directly from Brzezinski himself, who stated in a 1998 interview with a French periodical, According to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980, that is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan, 24th of December 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was July 3, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that in my opinion this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. This is an important point. What it means is that the CIA did not merely take a pre-existing movement of freedom fighters and aid them in their fight against the Soviets. What it means is that Western intelligence actively recruited Islamist extremists for the express purpose of provocateuring the Soviets into invading. By Brzezinski's own admission, if these Mujahideen had not been fostered by the CIA, the Soviets may never have invaded Afghanistan in the first place. In a very real sense, then, Brzezinski and the U.S. government fostered an extremist element of militant Islamists and helped form them into an effective fighting force. It was from the ranks of these Afghan Mujahideen that another group was to emerge, composed mostly of so-called Arab Afghans or foreign fighters who came to Afghanistan to take up the jihad against the Soviets. The expulsion of the Soviets from Afghanistan was to be just the first of their battles, and after the Red Army left, their attention was to turn elsewhere. Of course, the geopolitics of the era required that the U.S. not be directly implicated in funding and trading the Mujahideen. Domestically, Americans would have been outraged had they been aware that they were footing the bill for training and equipping Islamic militants, and internationally, if the Soviets knew the extent of the CIA involvement in the region, it could have brought the two superpowers to the brink of World War III. Consequently, the training, arming, and funding of the Mujahideen was run through a series of fronts and compartmentalized so that not even those supposedly directing the operation knew its full extent. The official story is that U.S. funding, arms, and training went exclusively to the Afghanis, with the money for the foreign jihadists, or so-called Arab Afghans from which Al-Qaeda would spring, coming from the Saudis. The facts on the ground, however, tell a very different story. Within this group of Arab Afghans was an even smaller group centered around Osama bin Laden, a Saudi-born heir to the bin Laden family construction fortune. In Afghanistan in the late 1980s, his group consisted of about a dozen people. This group was known as Al-Qaeda, or so we are led to believe. Bin Laden himself claimed in his last authenticated interview in late 2001 that the name came from Abu Abaydah al-Banashiri, one of his accomplices in establishing the training camps in Afghanistan. Strange, then, that four years later, 
After the 7-7 bombings in London in 2005, Robin Cook, the former leader of the House of Parliament in the UK, would write an article for the London Guardian in which he claimed Al-Qaeda, in English, the base, literally referred to the database of Mujahideen who were being handled by the CIA in Afghanistan. Some researchers have even noted that Al-Qaeda is a slang term for the toilet in Arabic, hardly a name for a shadowy global terrorist organization. Regardless of how the group got its name, the fact is that this small group of militants were nurtured with the Afghan Mujahideen by the CIA at the behest of Zbigniew Brzezinski. There is evidence of direct U.S. involvement with Osama bin Laden and the hardline Arab militants in all three areas of Operation Cyclone, including funding, training, and arming the Arab Afghans. The startling truth, according to the sworn testimony of Michael Springman, an official at the Jeddah Consulate during this period, is that not only was the CIA providing training to bin Laden and his operatives, but that bin Laden was, in fact, a CIA asset, and the agency was rubber-stamping visas for his operatives to go to the U.S. for training. And it wasn't until I was out of the Foreign Service, when my appointment had been terminated for unspecified reasons, that I learned from three good sources. Joe Trento, the journalist, uh, a fellow attached to a university in Washington, D.C., and a guy with expert knowledge on the Middle East who had worked for a government agency. They said, it's very simple. The CIA and its asset Osama bin Laden were recruiting terrorists for the Afghan war. They were sending them to the United States for training, for rewards, for whatever purpose, and then sending them on to Afghanistan. And most likely, the problems they had with the liquor at the consulate, uh, large amounts of it disappearing, it being sold at very high markups, uh, and so forth, was being used to fund this. Well, that's, that explained the whole thing. That explained why nobody wanted to talk to me about this. It explained why the file was shredded. And it explained uh, why they were so mad at me, because I apparently had disrupted their way of passing go and collecting $200 or more. Perhaps not coincidentally, the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, from which the CIA was smuggling operatives for bin Laden in the 80s, was the very consulate from which 11 of the 9-11 hijackers were to receive visas to enter the U.S., many of them using a special fast-track program called Visa Express, which only began four months before 9-11. Likewise, evidence links the CIA and bin Laden through arms sales. The suggestion that bin Laden was a customer for CIA arms has been repeated by Der Spiegel, BBC, and many other mainstream media sources. But in Simon Reeves' 1999 book, The New Jackals, one CIA source is quoted as saying that U.S. agents armed bin Laden's men by letting him pay rock-bottom prices for basic weapons. Incredibly, the funding for the Afghan operation also connects the U.S. to Osama. The U.S. provided the funding for the operation to the ISI, the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, which worked closely with the CIA. In turn, the ISI in cooperation with the CIA, 
distributed these funds to the Afghan Mujahideen through a front organization known as MAK, or the Bureau of Services. And one of the key men involved in arranging the finances of MAK, Osama bin Laden. After the Soviet withdrawal, Osama would take control of the organization, and it would become the base of what we now know as Al-Qaeda. In fact, the CIA, through their Pakistani proxies in the ISI, not only funded, armed, and trained Osama bin Laden, but helped spur poppy cultivation to record levels in Afghanistan in an attempt to get the Soviet troops addicted to heroin. And they created the Taliban, the hardline fundamentalist group that would take control of Afghanistan after the Soviets withdrew. And the Taliban government would become the only government in the world willing to harbor Osama bin Laden from 1996 onwards. The simple fact is that U.S. involvement in Afghanistan from 1979 onwards implicates them in the founding, funding, and training of Osama bin Laden and other hardline militant Islamists. And as we shall see, the ties extend much further into the 90s and beyond. But what does Brzezinski, one of Obama's top advisors, think about this? Does he, in retrospect, admit the danger in having nurtured Al-Qaeda and the Taliban into existence? Does he regret American involvement in the region? In his 1998 interview with Le Nouvel Observateur, he stated, What is most important to the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Some stirred-up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? That's it for our special sneak preview of Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, the forthcoming documentary, which of course you will be able to find at alqaedadoesntexist.com. Of course I will need my listeners' help in getting the word out about the documentary once it's released, so please get ready to spread the links around the internet the best way that you can. I'll also be working on trying to get an ISO file up so that people can burn the documentary to DVDs and distribute them out to people by hand. But again, that will be coming later on after the release of the documentary. I'm looking forward to releasing this documentary, and I hope you find the research in it useful for you and those around you. I will need your help in getting the word out about it, so please stay tuned for more information as it becomes available. And now I'd like to say once again thank you to each and every one of my listeners for making 2008 an incredible year for the Corbett Report podcast. We've managed to expand dramatically in both the scale and scope of what we're doing and the number of people that we're able to reach. And I certainly hope for an equally productive 2009. And of course, I can't do it without your help. So once again, thank you, each and every one of my listeners. Please take care during the holidays. Stay warm, stay safe, and have an excellent new year. See you again in January, and please keep your eye on CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com. <laughs>